Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray that prayer, we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Two weeks ago, after we uh, visited Rachel over there at, at her uh, job over in, uh, in Easton, uh, in the mall there, we, we went to the store nearby and, and I, I bought a calendar. I don't really use calendars, but they were 75% off. And uh, if you're wondering who buys calendars in February, this guy does. Um, I actually bought two. Uh, but one of them I, I almost threw out because it had so many nonsensical uh, PC holidays in it, and it skipped a lot of the normal ones. And I like the cartoons, so I wanted to keep it anyway. So I went through with a marker and, and removed the offending days. But there's a lot of fake holidays out there, I, I've discovered, you know. And certainly a lot of irrelevant ones, and, and sometimes there's whole months set aside in the calendar to celebrate something stupid, and, and I'm pretty sure 90% of it is made up in a boardroom by somebody. So earlier this week, uh, I'm driving around on the radio, and you know this thing is still in my mind, and one of the local talk show guys that I was you know, surfing around, he, he was doing an ad, and, and he mentioned that it's Healthy Heart Month, and I'm like, yeah, that's a thing. Sounded like another complete fabrication like most of the things in that calendar. I'd never heard of it, but I googled it later, and I found that, yes, indeed, February is, in fact, American Heart Month. Says who? Says the CDC. And who am I to disagree with anything the CDC says? Uh, So according to the CDC website, it says, February is American Heart Month, a time when all people can focus on their cardiovascular health. The Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention is shining a light on hypertension, a leading risk factor for heart disease and stroke. I'm like, well, man, get out the party hats. Let's eat some Cheerios and stuff. I don't know what you do to celebrate this. but um, And I, it makes sense, right? I mean, heart disease is uh, apparently the number one cause of natural death in the U.S., and I guess that means that apparently our hearts are a mess in this country. And as I was preparing for this week's sermon, I, I thought, isn't it nice to know that even the feds are concerned with pure hearts this month? Almost like the CDC was reading the Sermon on the Mount with us. Now, of course, it's not the CDC alone who's been talking about hearts. Some of you are aware that this past Monday was Valentine's Day. And hearts are the ultimate theme of that ultimate Hallmark holiday. And everywhere you look, you see these cartoony hearts with frills and sometimes with arrows through them because nothing says love like a critically wounded organ. I'm just glad it's over and the restaurants are going to have seating again and all those disgusting conversation hearts will disappear. And, you know, if you take a tip from a pro, the Valentine's chocolates are significantly cheaper on the 15th. You're welcome, men. Stay tuned for more holiday advice in coming months. But, you know, for several weeks, just like every February, red and pink hearts were were everywhere. And what more proof could a woman want of love, right? Even though Valentine's Day is thankfully over, here we are talking about hearts anyway. Again, you could call this a late Valentine's sermon. I mentioned before in previous messages that the Beatitudes keep getting harder and harder. This week is no exception. Uh, Phil said he was dismayed by last week's message. This is far worse, I think, in a way. How many of you feel confident in the purity of your heart? Okay, well then, me neither. And yet, it's a common saying in our culture 
Maybe you've heard this, that so-and-so has a good heart, right? You've heard this. I've heard it countless times. And I've also noticed that it's universally the kind of thing that people say immediately after pointing out something rather unflattering about the same person. Maybe you've noticed that. It seems to always be preceded by a but. He's lazy, but he has a good heart. Or a heart of gold, sometimes they'll say, right? She's a mess, but she has a good heart. He makes a lot of stupid decisions, but he has a good heart. That girl can't cook, but she's got a good heart. It's the equivalent of Southerners saying, bless her heart, right? Somehow, magically, it makes everything sound like a compliment that you just said. But when people say this, I think, they're implying that regardless of the obvious outward shortcomings, that the core is okay. This person that I like is not as bad as all of the evidence indicates. The heart The real person, the one underneath all the outward stuff, their true identity, the core of their being is, dare I say, pure. As one guy I knew used to put it, there are no losers, there's just winners with problems, right? (laughs) Almost everyone, says the culture, has a good heart. Other than like the rare exceptions, the Hitlers, right? But For having a good heart, people bear a lot of bad fruit, don't they? It's funny that people somehow expect that good hearts can produce so much trash. Uh, It makes you wonder what they think a not-so-good heart would be capable of. I, I don't know how so many hearts can be so good when the results are so poor so much of the time. And it is silly because they would never apply this logic to anything else. None of us would, right? If a company makes a bad product, we don't say, well, their heart was in the right place. If a doctor botches a surgery, no one says, well, he was trying his best. He has a good heart. Especially ironic if he was like a heart surgeon, for instance, you know. If anything, we we tend to assume, especially if we don't like something already, somebody already, we assume that the bad results are the product of a bad heart, uh, so we assume the worst of the hearts of, say, politicians and, and, and corporations and sometimes entire nations. And, and that's not entirely unfair. I think, you know, all sin and all of sin's consequences start in a bad heart somewhere. You know, maybe like Vladimir Putin's, for instance, right? You know, these things start somewhere. But I think our culture employs a very different standard for our friends and a very different standard for ourselves, if we are determined to defend someone, including ourselves, we, we, we are very good at divorcing the inner person from the outer person. Whatever we see on the outside, the inner reality is so much better. The real you, your heart, is pure. And I think this is why the culture will frequently talk about the heart as if it really should be our compass, because it's kind of perfect. So we hear slogans like, listen to your heart, as if that would make everything better, right? It's kind of like that 91 uh, uh, Roxette song, right? But it's a cliche everywhere. If you've watched enough Disney movies, you've heard this, right? Every girl I knew in high school who was willing to sign my yearbook put something to the effect of follow your heart in the signature, right? That is the accepted wisdom of our culture. How can the heart steer you wrong? And it's not just American culture either. 
Now, I'm not an expert, and I, I don't know any Spanish, so, I mean, these guys will have to correct me if, if, uh, if it comes to this. Juan, you'll explain. Uh, but I do enjoy salsa music. And so when we had Carolina, our, our Spanish student here, a couple summers ago, uh, we were, we would, I, I was listening to salsa. We were coming home from Cape May. We listened to, like, three straight hours of salsa music. Now, they don't have salsa in Spain, uh, but she was translating for us anyway, and she found this very amusing. And I told her, the only lyric I know and expect in every song, every salsa song, is Corazón. And she laughed hysterically because it was true, the more we listened, right? Corazón is a lyric in every single salsa tune ever written. I'm convinced of this. So it seems like the world around us generally believes that the heart is very important. And for the most part, they believe it to be trustworthy. It's the perfect inner you that's just waiting to shine forth. If we would only listen to it, we should listen. We need to follow it. We need to obey it. In Christianese, we talk about guarding it. That's one of my favorite Christianese phrases. You'll, you'll hear teenage boys at a youth retreat talking about a girl that he fancies, and oh, I'm just trying to guard her heart. Praying a hedge of protection around that heart right there, you know. <laughs> so maybe some of this creeps into the church as well. I think there is something akin to an idolatry of the heart that's prevalent in the world. And it kind of goes hand in hand with a sort of cult of self-esteem. My heart, my true identity, the real me is beautiful and praiseworthy. Never mind the mess you can see, my heart is pure. I can be young at heart even if I'm old, right? The heart, the real me. I can be pure of heart even when I'm a scoundrel. Now, I don't think we as Christians fundamentally disagree with the culture about the heart being the real you, because biblically speaking, the heart is the center of the person. The Bible almost never speaks of the heart in terms of an organ that pumps blood, right? Lloyd-Jones has said that the biblical idea of the heart is actually a way of saying the center of the personality, or the total man. Meaning in, in scripture, it's the seat of your emotions and your intellect and your will. In other words, it's how you feel, it's how you think, and it's how you decide. It's basically everything that makes you, you. It's what makes you tick. So I don't think we as Christians need to disagree that the heart is the deepest part of it. That, that language is actually quite biblical. Our disagreement has to do with the heart's supposed condition. We don't share the culture's rosy picture. I, this idolatry would actually be almost understandable if our hearts were pure, right? But that doesn't exactly match the biblical picture. If we've said in past messages, you know, that, that spiritual hunger described our deepest urges and desires, I think our heart is a reflection of our identity. And if we know our Bibles, we know that our inner core is not naturally very pure. One of my favorite cartoons I've seen on Facebook, it's uh, somebody tells a woman, you know, it just says, uh, uh, it says right above her, listen to your heart. And so she opens this little door in her heart and the heart's in there and the heart just says, sin! <laughs> so ridiculous and so accurate, right? And I think Jesus knew this because the same Jesus who pronounces this blessing on those who are pure of heart says in chapter 15, later on in the very same book, he says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Okay, so Jesus is under no illusions that hearts 
are naturally pure or anything, he would never make the mistake of telling you to listen to your heart. You know why? Because it's stupid advice. Your heart may be your true self, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Maybe some of you have seen there's, there's kids' T-shirts that you can get, you know, for, for your little boy, and it'll say on there, uh, uh, I, I like this. We never did buy it for Jacob, but we could have, you know, at some time. It says, always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Then always be Batman. <laughs> kind of a similar principle here. Why be yourself when your true self is kind of lame? Georgia likes the, the quote out of the movie, Good Morning Vietnam. The guy leaves, he says, I know in my heart that I am funny. And it's a funny line because it's obvious to anyone watching that the guy is not remotely funny. That's why he just lost his job. The heart cannot be trusted. We're not good evaluators of our own hearts. And Jesus knew it because he obviously knew his Bible. And he knows that in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet, the same Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, that doesn't sound terribly promising on a first reading, and I thought to myself, maybe this calls for a deeper word study. Uh, Maybe pure has some definition I haven't thought of or some connotation in the Greek that I may have missed. I think even in general English usage, purity in general is a, a pretty elusive thing. Uh, I said last week that I am a baseball purist. But nobody plays baseball purely. I'm not even entirely sure what I mean by it, except for the fact that I hate the designated hitter. (laughs) And pretty much anything Bud Sillig did when he was the commissioner, for that matter. Um, But I think it's true in almost anything. If you are a purist about anything, you're pretty much announcing to the world that you are disgruntled and angry and that you live a life of frustration. You become a purist because you're unhappy with things that are contaminating something that you love. And that leads to being irritated. Purists are, by nature, disgruntled. We typically think of pure things being uncontaminated. I think that's actually fairly scriptural. If something's uncontaminated, there's nothing in there that shouldn't be in there. It's not too far from the biblical picture. Martin Lloyd-Jones compared the Greek word used in this verse is is kathos, means purity, uh, but he compares it to another biblical word, haplos, meaning single. That word is often translated as whole or healthy. Uh, For instance, it's how Jesus describes a healthy eye, for instance. He says if your eye is single is actually what it means. If something is single, it means it's not contaminated. It doesn't have multiple parts. Lloyd-Jones says that a heart that is single, a heart that is pure, is free of hypocrisy. It has nothing to hide. I mean, we think about this in terms of purity of food. This is how we advertise things, right? Nobody wants foreign substances in their food, things we can't read. We want it to be pure, simple ingredients. We want it to be single, as it were. Now, when I worked at Penn State, confession time, Uh, We used pre-sliced American cheese singles for everything. And uh, I will never forget one day, I actually read the label. And the first ingredient was American cheese. (laughs) And I am sad to report that that was not the only ingredient listed (laughs) on the package. These cheese singles were not biblically single. They were contaminated. 
And my conscience still has to live with the fact that I served this to thousands of students over several years at Penn State. Now, in church circles, when we talk about purity, it seems very often to have a a sort of sexual connotation because we spent much of the 90s and the early 2000s immersed in what was called the purity movement. Uh, The outward goal, I think, was actually good. Uh, We were encouraging young Christians to to save sex from marriage. And I consider myself something of of an expert on the purity cult because Georgia was a big Joshua Harris fan, as I've mentioned before. He was required reading to date her. Like, no wonder I was her first boyfriend, right? Like, who else was going to jump into this thing? Um, I like to think it's also a testimony of how hard I was willing to fight for her. But um, she dragged me through the whole I kiss dating goodbye cycle of dating but not calling it dating and being together but not being allowed to call her my girlfriend and this kind of thing. And, and you know, having contracts with each other. And somehow this is supposed to keep us pure. And by rejecting the secular dating culture, we could defy the odds and we could stay pure. And we survived, right? But the purity culture in some ways created more problems than it solved. I think that the biggest disservice that the purity movement did is it portrayed purity as something you were born with that had to be preserved. And purity became synonymous with physical, literal virginity, and purity therefore was inherent until you lost it, and then you spent your life in self-flagellation and penance to atone for it. And it was very easy for the purity movement to turn into a form of slavery to works righteousness. And I think it messed with a lot of people. Now, even with those failings, that movement wasn't wrong about everything. The secular dating culture does need a kick in the backside, right? And worldly dating methods should be burned to the ground. A little more interest in purity would be healthy, But purity can't be narrowly defined as a sexual thing uh, because, especially when you think of things in in reference to the heart, because if the heart is the seat of your emotions and your thoughts and your willpower, that's a problem because even if you abstain from sinning physically, your heart can be defiled anyway. You can abstain from premarital sex or any other number of sins and still not be pure. Because everything in your heart, in your inner being, still wants to sin. Your emotions are nearly impossible to control. Your thoughts are significantly more scandalous than anything you've ever actually had the nerve to do. And your willpower is probably not as strong as you think it is. I'd go so far as to say that the main thing keeping us from sinning outwardly every single minute is usually the occasional lack of opportunity. And even then, our heart can still be mired in the muck. All that to say is that purity of heart is not an easy one among the commands here. If Jesus is commanding us to be pure in heart, that's a tall order. But okay, let's consider what the promise is. Because maybe being pure seems nearly impossible. Maybe if the promise is good enough, it'll give us the motivation we need to at least give it a whack, right? What does Jesus promise for the pure in heart? He says they will see God. Now, I've got to be honest, on the face of that, initially analyzing this, that kind of sounds terrifying. And when you read the Bible, what's, sort of, what's the universal response when anybody in the Bible sees an angel? An angel shows up at your door. What does the angel have to tell them right away? 
Don't, yeah, don't be afraid. Basically, don't freak out. That's like almost universal. And, and that implies that the natural human reaction to seeing just angels is absolute terror. The mere sight of God's holy angels is enough to make Chuck Norris wet himself. <laughs> now compare that with seeing God himself. The handful of times when anybody comes close to seeing God, they are certain they're going to die. Jacob wrestles with God one night, and when he realizes later what happens, I think he was nauseous. He's like, I could, he could not believe he was alive and still breathing. Moses got to see a glimpse of God's back, and he was nearly blinded, and he glowed for days, and people were afraid to even look at Moses because he had seen like God's shoulder blades. Seeing God face to face is a frightening thing. Impure, unholy people will die in his presence. And yet, ever since Adam, that's all God's people have ever really wanted. Because the only thing scarier than seeing God is never seeing him or being abandoned by him. It's scary, but it's what we want. It's kind of how kids feel talking to their parents when they're in trouble. The entire hope of God's people is that one day we might see God. That's the hope of heaven, that when we pass from this world, we will wake up in glory and see him. Theologians call this the beatific vision, the blessed sight, when we will see God face to face. And that's what makes this beatitude one of the most profound statements in Scripture. It's the greatest promise that God's people could receive. Because the right to see God is what Adam lost in the garden. Adam, when he sinned, was driven away from God's presence. Before that time, Adam and Eve had walked with God in the cool of the day, is the way it's worded. Now, we've all experienced an Allentown summer, right? I don't even know what the phrase cool of the day means. It doesn't even make sense. It sounds so pleasant and so comfortable. What I wouldn't give to have weather that nice, and they got to enjoy that weather with God himself. That's what was lost. And throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, all of God's people had to keep their distance from God. After the Exodus, Moses was allowed to approach God on Sinai, but other than Moses, no one else was allowed on the mountain because God's presence would kill anyone, even animals who set foot on it. The psalmist laments when he feels like God has hidden himself. In Psalm 10, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And think about the entire Old Testament approach to worship. It starts in the tabernacle, and then it carries on into the first and the second temple. All the purity laws, all the sacrifices, the priestly regulations, the fact that the Ark of the Covenant would kill you if you touched it, the seemingly endless rules about how to approach the temple, the fact that the inner chamber of the temple, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was completely off-limit to all but like one chosen priest on special occasions, right? The fact that most of God's people would live their entire lives, not only without seeing God, they wouldn't even see the mercy seat where he was understood to dwell. Now, does anyone think that they did this out of a sense of fun? Everything about 
the Old Testament system was a big, fat, elaborate sign that something is not as it should be. That God's people had lost the right to walk with him in the cool of the day, or any other time of the day for that matter. The point of being able to see God, it's not sneaking a peek at God. We're not paparazzi. You're not trying to catch a glimpse of the queen. It's not about seeing God. It's about fellowship. It's about getting back what Adam lost. There's a hokey old hymn that says, you know, he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I'm his own. It kind of makes terrible song lyrics, but it is what our soul longs for. In fact, I would say we want what Moses had. In Exodus 33, it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Now, who wouldn't want that? You think of it that way, of course we want to see God. We want to know that he hasn't abandoned us and that if we see him, he won't kill us and he won't chase us away. To be one of God's people is to want to be with him. And that's why Lloyd-Jones calls this beatitude one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Scripture. And yet we tremble. Even if we begin to believe this verse and comprehend this promise, we tremble. Because how how can we face something so great? I think we all feel a little like Isaiah when Isaiah saw God. He said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How can we see God and live? We have unclean lips and impure hearts. How are we going to fix that? Because that does seem to be the obvious application, right? Go be pure in heart. Try harder. Fix your core and everything will be fine. Just go do it, all ye sinners. Stop it. Be better. I could say that. Wouldn't be terribly helpful to any of you or to me. So how do we get a pure heart? I also like how Lloyd-Jones words this. He says the only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart. In other words, the first step is realizing we have a problem. You can't just claim purity of heart. It's not like Weird Al in Amish Paradise. He says, you know, think you're really righteous, think you're pure in heart. Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art. John Stott talks about purity of heart in this verse, and he says it's kind of synonymous with sincerity. He observes that what David says in the 24th Psalm, he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. So a pure heart is the opposite of a deceitful heart, a heart full of guile and hypocrisy, a heart that's living a lie. Now, purity of heart, I think, means even more than that, but it certainly doesn't mean any less than that. A heart that is self-deceived can't see even its own impurity. And this is why the world around us insists that everyone has a good heart. They can't face the possibility that our hearts might all be rotten. But what I want us to see and to know, beloved, is that Jesus, as the most blessed man and the only man who was actually pure in heart, is not that naive. He knows that the heart is desperately wicked. He has seen that in action since the fall. He's not stupid. He knows we can't pull this off. 
He also knows what a joy it is to see God. He knows this firsthand. He doesn't know him from a distance. He's been right in the throne room from all eternity, face to face with the Father. He knows what it's like to walk with his Father in the cool of the day. He knows what it's like for the Father to walk with him and talk with him and tell him he's his own. It's Jesus who heard the words, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased with you. Jesus has seen God and he has lived. In fact, he's been doing it from eternity and he loved it. And the only reason he walked away from all that is so that we could see God too. And we could see him and not only live, but enjoy it. And he came to offer this blessing as a promise that we will get back what Adam lost. Now, how's it supposed to work? If Jesus is not so naive as to think we can do this on our own. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't answer it because the obvious answer is no one. Who can purify himself? What impure heart can cleanse itself? Franchetti kids, do the dinner dishes wash themselves? Does the dog poop pick itself up? No. And broken things don't fix themselves. We can't fix our heart for the same reason that the dishes aren't going to wash themselves. No. A pure heart requires a miracle. It's going to be new emotions, a new mind, a new will, a new, cure, a new core, and a new identity. And we can't do that for ourselves any more than a man can do open-heart surgery on himself. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't bring this up just to make you despair. Because why would he offer such a wonderful promise just to kick us to the curb? And you know, there's a strange irony in this promise because Jesus was God in the flesh, which means everyone who heard this sermon and the original audience was already seeing God. Some of them even walked with him and talked with him. And it's possible that not everyone in the crowd was pure in heart, but they saw God without even realizing, and yet it didn't destroy any of them. Why? Because when we couldn't draw near to God, God came down to us. Jesus came here to claim a people for himself, and his call is not for you to go purify yourself. It's to come to him and let him change out the core. To stop trying to fix it ourselves. He wants you to come and lay your impure heart at his feet, the same way a child brings a broken toy to his father and asks him to please fix this. And that's what he does. He says in Ezekiel, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And Jesus does one better than that. He actually gives you his heart. You receive his mind. You receive his emotions. His will becomes increasingly your own. You receive his purity so that one day you can see God and not die. And you can walk with him and talk with him face to face as one talks to a friend. The Apostle John puts it this way in his first epistle. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that's the promise, brothers and sisters. The way to get pure is to rest in the hope that you will 
be like him. It's not about trying harder. It's about putting your hope in the one who is pure. And if you have already done that, if you've put your hope in Jesus, then the best way I can tell you to apply today's verse is to cling to its promise. Rest in it. Rest in the assurance that God no longer judges you according to your old heart and your old identity because he has given you a new one. Rest in the knowledge that he is making all things new and rejoice in the fact that you will see God. It's a promise. So be encouraged. And if you haven't yet put your hope in him, don't despair. The first step is acknowledging that you have a problem. The day of salvation starts with an identity crisis. You need a new heart and a new identity. So my advice to you is don't be yourself. And don't be Batman either. Much better to be like Jesus, and he's happy to do that for you because he is in the business of removing, donating, and softening hearts. That's not always a painless surgery, but it's always successful. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you knowing that we have nothing to offer, Lord. We, we have impure hearts, Lord. The core is rotten. And yet, Lord, we have the boldness to come before you because you have given us new ones. And you're not looking at us and seeing that rotten core anymore. that you see into our very core and you see the pure, holy heart of Christ. Lord, it's so hard for us to believe sometimes, but we pray that you would encourage us, Lord. And for those who don't know it, Lord, I pray that you would break their hearts, Lord, and show them their need for Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promise that one day we will see you face to face, Lord that we will be able to walk with you and talk with you and see you face to face and talk as we do to a friend. Thank you for making us your friends. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.